Thank you. Let's, uh, let's begin just bowing our heads in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, we ask you for the gift of your Holy Spirit this evening to settle our hearts and focus our minds. May your Holy Spirit come upon us and within us to make us receptive and responsive to, to your divine will. We ask in particular for the gift of counsel that we may see clearly which you place before us and know how to respond according to your will. We ask this through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother and our queen, of St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, and in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm Father Scalia. I'm a priest of this diocese, and uh, I'm going to speak tonight on uh, homosexuality and uh, how to uh, best present the Church's teaching, uh, not just with clarity, as Father said, uh, but also with charity. Uh, the human heart is made for the truth, and uh, so, which means that we should never be in doubt as to uh, the truth and its purpose for the heart. But also, that also means that when we are dealing with the truth, we always have to handle it in a way that corresponds uh, to the human heart, to charity. So, uh, clarity and charity are sort of the touchstone words of how to address this issue. Uh, just so you know sort of the perspective I'm coming from, I was the chaplain for the Courage chapter in the Diocese of Arlington for seven years. I was, I was the founding chaplain of that. I'll tell you more about Courage during the course of the talk. Just briefly, the Courage Apostolate is established to help men and women who have same-sex attractions to live chastity. I'll get more into the work of courage uh, later on, but uh, just so you know that I was the director, the chaplain of that uh, for the Diocese of Arlington for seven years, running the weekly meetings, and now I'm uh, chairman of the board of Courage International, although I'm no longer the local chap uh, chaplain, I'm still involved in the work uh, a great deal. So basically what I want to do tonight is speak to you about people who are caught in the middle. Uh, caught between two very uncharitable extremes. Uh, namely, men and women who have same-sex attractions and who want to live chastity. They are caught between these two extremes. On one extreme, the homosexual culture. Uh, the very vocal, the very uh, powerful political uh, group that promotes the homosexual lifestyle. And what they say is you should give in to same-sex attractions and you should live a homosexual lifestyle. Embrace that. It's who you are and if you try uh, to live chastity, you're just being untrue to yourself and you'll never be happy. That's one extreme. The other extreme uh, was in the news, I guess, about a year ago, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, um, which is famous for its God hates fags uh, ideology. I don't think people really would think that, or if they did, would say it publicly uh, until that sort of hit the, hit the news and 
can find you know, anything on the internet, and there they are. Uh, and so their point of view is, well, someone who has same-sex attractions is inclined to sexual behavior that God condemns. Therefore, God condemns that person. God hates sex. This is a very difficult place for people to be. One extreme says, indulge this. And if you don't indulge it, you'll never be happy. The other extreme says, there, there's, there's no hope for you because really God is against you. These men and women are very much caught in the middle in our culture. My words tonight will not uh, really address the political dimension of all of this. Uh, so, especially if you came to hear Scalia talking about anything political, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Okay? <laughs> Uh, because I'm not going to be touching on that at all. Uh, because the problem that we're facing uh, is not only political. It's not even primarily political. It is, first of all, a moral, a cultural issue, a spiritual one that affects individual souls. And so that is the first place where we need to address this issue. Not, first of all, in the political realm, but in the realm of human relationships. So I want to speak about how to, basically, how to love in truth. I was tempted to say how to love them. But that would be inaccurate. Because one of the mistakes that is often made is to say, well, this is a problem, this issue of same-sex attractions is a problem that affects people somewhere far away, but certainly not anywhere close to me. That would be a mistake. Because chances are some people here on campus are struggling with this. Uh, and chances are, not just chances, but it is a certainty that when you graduate and enter into the broader culture, uh, you will encounter people who struggle with this or in the lifestyle. So it's not a matter of sort of us and them. It's a matter of us. And how do we address this reality, which is not something just afflicting other people, but is really throughout our entire culture. And there are members of our church who suffer from these attractions that are unwanted and desire to live chastity. I want to point out before I get into sort of the meat of things. Um, well, let's just review the broad situation, okay? Because, for example, the congressman who stands up and rails against gay marriage because it's destroying the sanctity of marriage. And he himself has been divorced and married, you know, three or four times. Well, he kind of loses a little credibility. Okay. Point is, the issue of homosexuality does not exist in a vacuum. It's not as though it came out of nowhere. No, this is just part of a broader problem that afflicts our culture, which is a breakdown in the notion of a truth about human sexuality and an even broader uh, breakdown in the understanding of the human person. Let me put it this way just briefly. We live in a world of cause and effect and of design, right? We know all about cause and effect, so when 
something goes wrong, what do we do? We immediately try to find out the cause and blame someone else usually, right? Okay. So when the economy is bad, we try to figure out, okay, well, why is, what's the cause of that? When the Steelers lose, we try to say, okay, why did that happen? Okay, because we live in a world of design, of cause and effect. And we acknowledge that about the economy, about physics, about many, many things. But not about human sexuality. This is one area in which we do not acknowledge design or cause and effect. For example, true story, man walks in, it sounds like a joke, it could be really if it's a true story. Man walks into a priest's office, sits down and says, Father, I don't know how it happened, but my wife is pregnant. Well, it should have gone over that marriage prep, okay? Um, there is a failure to acknowledge cause and effect. Will I can tell you how your wife got pregnant? You know, we know exactly how it happens these days. Okay, <laughs> we have science. Okay, but in a world of contraception, of course, in a contraceptive culture, a man can say, "I don't know how it happened." When else in history would a man ever have said that? We've lost this whole notion of design, cause, and effect. What do I mean by design? Well, a human person is designed for something. We are created for a purpose. There is a certain design to who we are, both spiritually and physically, that points to a certain purpose in our lives. The same is true with human sexuality. I don't know how tight the filters are. Um, the internet uses Christendom, and they're very tight. Uh, but there's a very good article by Jay Budaszewski, great natural law teacher, uh, it's entitled, Design for Sex. Excellent, excellent natural law uh, explanation of human sexuality. Design for sex. Just describing the truth about human sexuality, that there's a design here. There's a purpose. And within that, we can, we can discern the cause and effects in things. Our culture doesn't recognize that. So one time when I was sitting speaking with a man who uh, came to talk to me about his homosexual attractions, and I explained to him, well, just a simple truth about the human body. Uh, and Jay Bucheski, uh explains this very well, that every other organ of the human body is explained by just one person, by one body alone. You don't need another person in order for you to, to discern the purpose of your lungs or of your eyes, or of your ears. The single exception to this rule, of course, is human genitalia. They make no sense apart from a relation with another person and another person of the opposite sex. They are inexplicable, biologically, except within the context of that relationship. And I explained all this to this man, who himself was a biology student. He saw that immediately. And yes, absolutely right. But I still am unwilling to leave my boyfriend. In other words, he, he could recognize the design. He could recognize the truth of this, but not apply it to the world, to the realm of sexual morality. This is where we are, and it really begins with contraception. 
In other words, the whole issue is, more broadly speaking, an issue of breakdown in heterosexual morality that has led to now a, uh, a real push for a homosexual culture in our country. Next, I'd like to review the church's teaching on this. And most crowds, I have to, have to begin with, okay, God. All right? <laughs> in a Christian crowd, I think, okay, we've got that, right? Okay, let's just go over what the church teaches on this. And there's no better place than the catechism. And let me just warn you about some mischief makers in this area will use the first edition of the Catechism. Okay, you're all too young to remember, but when this beautiful piece of work, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, was first published, uh, it was published in English and all other major languages before it was put into the official Latin. And then later on, they went back and put it into the official Latin. When they did that, they made some corrections. What does that mean? Now they have to reissue all the other languages means there was a first edition of the New Catechism, and then a couple years later, a second edition of the New Catechism, which made a lot of money for the publishers. In the second edition, there were some significant corrections made. It was uh, the church very clearly sort of um, correcting her, her thought on things or making it more explicit. And one of those sections was the section on homosexuality. So, in the public, in, in discussing this, make sure that it's the current uh, edition. Paragraph 2357 and following in the Catechism. The text basically identifies three different areas. A threefold distinction. Actions, attractions, and persons. First, what does the church teach about homosexual actions? That they are intrinsically evil. Meaning, no situation can ever make them good. This is not the, they're not the only actions that the church calls intrinsically evil, by the way. They're just the ones that get the most attention. Uh, what this means is no amount of love for another person, no matter no amount of devotion, can justify the actions. No situation can ever make those actions uh, more. Raise your hand if you heard me say that the church teaches homosexual persons are intrinsically evil. Thank you. Put your Thank you. The church does not teach that, never has. I bring that up because, remember this extreme, sort of the homosexual subculture, this is the line that is told about the church. That the church says that homosexuals are intrinsically evil or wicked. The church doesn't say that. That the actions are. Actions first. Second, attractions. Homosexual attractions or inclinations are objectively disordered. And that, in the first section, is also better perhaps better term to use for than evil. Intrinsically disordered are the actions. The attractions are objectively disordered. What does that mean? Objectively disordered. 
it means that prescinding from a judgment about the person, about blame, blame, or guilt, just saying, do these actions or, or attractions lead in the proper direction? Remember, human sexuality is designed for something. It is designed for a certain purpose. If it, if it, if it is not leading to that purpose, then it is disordered. And so those attractions, which lead to acts which are objectively disordered, or intrinsically disordered, those attractions themselves are objectively disordered. The person, the person is not called objectively disordered, which brings us to the third level. The person, what does the church teach about the person? The number of men and women of deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Homosexual persons are called to chastity by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace. They can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. Christian perfection. The, the, the actions are objectively, are intrinsically disordered. The attractions are objectively disordered. The persons, the persons are called sanctity. The persons are good. And the project uh, on our hands is to distinguish the person from the actions and the attractions. What do both extremes have in common? The homosexual culture says, if you have same-sex attractions, if you have homosexual attractions, that defines who you are. It collapses the identity of the person into sexual attractions. That's who you are, you have to live it. And the opposite extreme basically does the same thing. If you have same-sex attractions, that's who you are, and that's why God doesn't like you. So these two extremes, who, in every other regard, hate each other and don't agree, they actually agree on this fundamental point, fundamental mistake. They collapse sexual attractions and personal identity into the same thing. And so, so much of the task that we have uh, in the work of courage is to distinguish the person from the attractions. Simply because somebody is attracted to a person of the same sex does not mean that that attraction identifies the person. The person is distinct. The person is to be loved. The person is called to be a saint. These seem like tough teachings. And in many regards, they're very difficult uh, for, for some people to live. Uh, one man came to our courage meeting years ago after the bishops had released a, their most recent statements on this issue. 
And the, the, you know, of course, the newspapers jumped on it and said the bigoted Catholic Church, just that and the other. The guy read the statement and he said, "This is great." Especially when the bishop said, same-sex attractions are objectively disordered. He said, yes, that's true. I've always felt that. And now somebody is saying it clearly. He came to courage because he heard someone speaking the truth. A truth that he had felt, and he himself felt that disorder within himself. And when somebody else articulated it, that drew him to courage so that he could get help and live chastity. So these three levels, if the actions are, objective, are intrinsically disordered, the attractions are objectively disordered, the person, a good, to be affirmed, to be loved, and called to sanctity. That gives basically um, exactly really everything we need to know in engaging with people who have same-sex attractions who are struggling with this and who need help. How do we interact with them? Well, to distinguish the person from the attractions. Not to reduce a person's identity to just uh, the attractions that they feel. Some other things, sort of ground rules for, um, for this. Language. I presume, I hope, and since Dr. Donald Cyril said this, I presume, I hope, it's required reading for every single Christian college student to, to read abusive language, abusive power. Okay? And I hope. Okay, it doesn't have to be required, but I recommend it anyway. Uh, great book by Joseph Pieper, and it gets at this point on the importance of precision in language and charity in language. So first, how about the term orientation? We hear this a lot in our culture. Sexual orientation. And I, I don't have a Facebook page. Uh, that's why you've never heard of me. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, I understand like, you know, a lot of these sites and things like that, they, I guess you, you can like click which sexual orientation you have. Um, well, there's only one sexual orientation. Because human sexuality is only oriented in one direction for the twofold purpose of union and procreation. And anything that departs from that orientation is not another orientation, it's a disorientation. Or, as the traditional language has it, it is a disorder. It is not going in the proper order. The proof of this is in the multiplication of sexual orientations that we have now. I don't recommend that you do it. I sometimes have to do it because of my work. But in a lot of the sort of the popular homosexual literature, the number of sexual orientations is continually multiplying. It's gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, transsexual, bisexual, um, questioning, uh, queer, uh, and it just keeps going on. Like every time we check, there's like another one added. Okay. All this shows is that when we lose sight of the one orientation of human sexuality, it's not that we're going to limit ourselves to, you know, two or three. So, no, what we have now is sexual chaos. So what we should do is a 
term sexual orientation. Really only one. Uh, and this is actually something that the, the, the church itself has sort of stepped away from. Another term that the church has stepped away from, actually in recent documents, is the term homosexual persons. That doesn't really, that's not really accurate either. There are only three kinds of persons. Human, angelic, and divine. That's it. Okay. Um, we don't want to sort of confine the definition of a person by saying, ah, this is a homosexual person. No. They are persons. Period. Who happen to struggle with uh, a particular uh, cross, but they are persons. Uh, the terms gay and lesbian, these are political terms. Uh, these are political terms that are used to indicate not just a sexual attraction, but a certain lifestyle that has been chosen and has been ratified by that person. Which is why you've heard me using this very sort of clumsy term, same-sex attractions. Okay? It's, it's not as efficient, but it's more accurate. Because it's not as though uh, persons are either, you know, persons who have same-sex attractions are, you know, all the same category. I have worked with men who have lived in the homosexual lifestyle for years, uh, some of whom, nothing short of miraculous, they're still alive, given the number of partners that they have, um, and who come seeking chastity uh, and freedom. And it's one of the most inspiring things in the world. And that's why the group is called courage. Because it takes a lot of courage for a man to walk out of that lifestyle and come to a Catholic church say, I want chastity. There are also some men who come to our meetings who never live the lifestyle at all, and just have these very intense feelings of attract, sexual attraction to other men. Never act on but feel them very intensely. Well, these are two very different things, but they both fall under the category of same-sex attractions. It's a more honest term. And one thing that it, that it avoids is identifying the person with the attractions. I wrote a piece uh, some years ago for First Things Magazine. Um, you probably saw it. <laughs> but um, uh, just about this point that, uh, and recollecting that, I remember when I was in high school, when all of the teachers and guidance counselors and coaches and everybody did says, hey, listen, you shouldn't label people. You shouldn't label people. Because what do high schoolers like to do? To label everybody. Because it's so much easier when you can label someone that you don't have to deal with the person. It's great. Say, okay, she's a cheerleader. That's it. That's who she is. Now I have to actually get to know her. Because I put a label on her. That's easy. Okay, he's a jock over there. Okay, he's a nerd, whatever else. Okay, and everybody's cool.
Um, and uh, uh, now public high schools, and unfortunately there's an initiative in some Catholic high schools as well, uh, they, they have you know, gay support groups or homosexual groups. And what does that do? They assume a label. They're placing labels on people. Uh, that is something they don't want to do, and our language should reflect that. Which leads to another aspect of language, and that is the charity of it. Using pejorative terms uh, is a really damaging thing. Fag, faggot, queer, whatever else. These things are damaging even when people don't mean them to be. Even when people don't mean them to be. This is why we have to be very charitable in our language uh, and not use language that has the potential to hurt others, even, even when we don't mean to. Now, obviously, some people might be too sensitive at times. You know, maybe if somebody says something the least bit negative about Italians, I'm not going to be upset. But all things being equal, we have to give consideration for, for others and how our words influence others. I remember in high school that we used these terms, and I remember that we didn't mean anything by them. And I mean, when I was in high school, to say something was gay just meant it was, it was stupid, we didn't like it, whatever else. Now, years later, dealing with men who for whom such phrases uh, really they, they take them like a ton of bricks. And now realizing that when one of my friends from high school came out of the closet, you know, shortly after we graduated college, realizing, wow, how did my words hurt him back then? And how did my words back then cripple my ability to help him now? That's that's something painful to consider. <clears throat> Some years ago I was hiking of uh, some, some uh, youth group from my parish at the time, and uh, one of the kids said, oh, that's so gay. Um, I kind of feel bad, because everyone came down like a ton of bricks. Okay, you never do with him. All right. Um, uh, there's a great deal of shame that the men and women encourage experience. A great deal of shame. There can be a good kind of shame, and that's when we are ashamed of what we've done. That's a good kind of shame. But when we're ashamed of who we are, that's devastating. And shame really contracts on one in a very destructive lifestyle. And so a lot of the work of courage is to lead these men and women uh, to that genuine shame of since they committed, but to free them from that shame of who they are. So charity in our language. Which brings me back to something I said at the beginning. This is not primarily a political thing at all. Um, and we've got to be careful about this um, because if we approach this just as sort of like an intellectual discussion or a political discussion, what we're going to forget is that there are souls involved. And we could, we're in danger of running roughshod over them. I know this by experience. 
in college, I was having a discussion with uh, a classmate, a girl, about abortion. And for me, this is an intellectual sort of political exercise, just, you know, debating this, and it was just so cut and dry to me. She was smoking cigarette after cigarette as we spoke, and her hand was shaking, and she was so anxious and nervous. And I was so sort of detached and objective about the whole thing, and just making my points over and over again. It wasn't years later, reflecting on that, that I realized she was showing all the symptoms of a woman who had had abortion. And my insensitivity to that point uh, lost her. Lost any, you know, I didn't have a chance really to get to her soul, to get to her heart. Because every time I treated it just like sort of an intellectual exercise, I'm right, you're wrong, yeah. just driving the shame deeper and deeper into her. When we get into such discussions, keep this in mind. You're not arguing to win a point. You're arguing to win a heart for Christ. You're trying to to convert the heart. And we can way too often score the point, logically be victorious, and lose the soul. So, clarity and charity in our language, very, very important. Let me say something about uh, the apostle of courage, and then um, some of the things that we that, um, that we encounter, and I'll open up for a Q and A. Courage was founded in uh, the early '80s by Father John Harvey, who's an oblate of St. Francis of Sales. He just died last December 27. You can pray for the repose of the soul, but I recommend also that you invoke his prayers for your soul. Uh, Father John Harvey was an extraordinary man. Here's a man who is fighting a battle that is incredibly unpopular. By the way, he was doing it decades before anyone else. The most peaceful and placid man I've ever met. He was really a unique combination of a man who was a real warrior, a real soldier of Christ, but meek and gentle at the same time. We know in principle that these things are not exclusive, uh, but we very rarely see them combined. Father Harvey combined that. Great, great man. So he established courage as a, basically a spiritual support group for men and women who have same-sex attractions. We meet weekly uh, simply to provide that support for one another. There are five goals that courage abides by, or strive for rather. First, chastity. That, that'd be good for everyone, right? Um, and so the first goal is to live chaste lives in accordance with Roman Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality. And before anyone can come to a meeting, 
they have to meet with the chapter. Uh, so I, when I was running the meetings, I said, nobody comes to the meeting except for me. Uh, and, and so we interview them to make sure that you're on board with this, the chastity. Okay? And a couple of times, I encountered guys said, well, actually, no. I'm not interested in chastity the way the Roman Catholic Church teaches it. I'm interested in just reducing the number of partners I have. Okay, well, um, there was someone who was sort of had a glimpse of the truth, was attracted to it, but was not yet ready for it. And therefore not ready for it. Second, prayers and devotions. The purpose is spiritual growth. It's not just, okay, just be chased. Just, you know, punch you know, your, your fists and be chased, and that's it. No. Spiritual direction, um, spiritual reading, regular confession, daily mass, just a good regimen of spiritual growth. These two goals, they, you know, are pretty good for everybody, right? Third, fellowship, support of one another, and especially at the meetings. One of the things that happens at the meetings, somebody new comes to a courage meeting, and it takes a lot of guts to walk into a room where you don't know a soul, and sit down and reveal to people there whom you've never met, reveal something that chances are you've never told anyone else in your life. Uh, it's extraordinary to watch this happen, the courage that it takes. It's really amazing. Uh, and then what happens is they realize, oh my gosh, these people have not condemned me, nor have they run from the room screaming. Uh, at, at this revelation of mine. Uh, and then a lot of times what happens is the guy will come and he'll kind of tell his story and all, all the other guys around the table will start nodding their heads and say, yes, I know that struggle. I've experienced it. This fellowship is very, very important because one of the greatest crosses is loneliness. <clears throat> loneliness. The, the, the feeling that I cannot tell anyone about this. I'm completely alone in this struggle. And to walk into a room and realize there are people here who understand what I'm going through and are willing to help me be chased. What does that mean? That's meaning for you. It really is. Fourth, friendship. And the Catechism mentions this, disinterested friendship. Making a very good distinction uh, between the kind of friendship that you find in pseudo-chastity um, groups that is not disinterested, but a friendship is sexual activity. But genuine friendship. The Catechism has a paragraph on friendship. In what section? In the section on chastity. Very interesting, because in order to live chastity, we need the capacity to have an intimate relationship with someone that is not an erotic or sexual relationship. That's what friendship is. The ability to, to express myself, to open my heart, to be vulnerable to someone, to, be, to really have this, you know, everything that constitutes an intimate relationship, but, but it's not sexual or erotic. That's what a friendship is. Uh, and so courage strives to, to have these kinds of friendship. Because if someone can, can do that, then they are 
are capable of being chased. They understand intimacy uh, without a sexual component. Because a lot of what is going on in um, homosexual activity is a search for intimacy, a search for connection with someone, and it's being done wrong. I'll come back to that. Fifth, the fifth goal, something that lives good examples. In other words, I should lead lives that other people see and say, that, that is a good man. That is a good woman. I want to know what makes that man or woman so good. Uh, and there, there are several members of the, of the Kurdish chapter in Arlington that, that uh, you know, have been in the group for a long time, I get to know them better than, than others, and really extraordinary guys. No, struggle. Like in the next room. And always around. 
And this doesn't mean that that was a bad guy. Who knows what, you know, what problems that is facing, what difficulties he has. And so sometimes <laughs> there, there is a desire on the, the part of the father and the son to have a more intimate relationship. And it's not working, and, and it means you know, some wounds for, for both of them. Uh, some of the guys encouraged me, this is something that came up again and again and again, which is, you know, my dad taught me how to, how to make money, taught me how to you know, balance a budget, taught me how to do this, how to get a job, whatever else. But he never taught me to be a man. And that's another issue. So at, at the courage meetings, I think a lot of my brother priests think that all we do is sit around and like just just talking about, you know, how to avoid sex, you know, and, and that's it, you know. No, actually most of the meetings are talking about things like um, fatherhood and, and how you heal that wound uh, between the father and the son, which is, by the way, the very heart of the gospel. Um, identity, male, female identity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Loneliness. And so, in a lot of cases, um, being uh, rejected by peers. Um, one of the things that, I mean, I think a very common sort of thing that happens is a young man has a desire to fit in with the other guys, to have that male companionship, that fraternity, camaraderie, but he doesn't fit in with the other guys very often.
becoming the issue on which the church is suffering persecution. The bishops just established a special committee regarding religious freedom because we're seeing the freedom of the church threatened more and more. There are places, uh, for example, in Canada, increasingly difficult for a priest, for example, simply to teach on the truth of ethnic sexuality. Pope Benedict has made this observation that increasingly it, it will become impossible to, to say that homosexuality is, is not correct. Um, all the more uh, our need to be able to reach out to those souls who are searching for the truth. Uh, because the church is not simply saying no all the time. She also provides a yes to those who are seeking chastity. John Paul II, uh, one of his writings, wonderful, wonderful line about Ten Commandments in particular, saying they are a no, many of them are a no at the service of a greater yes. Our culture's understanding of the church is that it's a big school. Just always saying no to everything. What I hope that you um, have at least begun to learn tonight is a way that the church says yes. Yes, chastity is possible. Yes, we can help you. Uh, yes, there are people who understand what you're going through, what you're suffering. Uh, yes, you are loved by God. You are not cast out by Him. Uh, these are the most important things that the church says. And the no's that she speaks, they're simply the service of that greater yes to each soul that is searching for the truth and for salvation. So, thank your attention. I will open it to uh, Q&A. Um, so, if we have any questions, I should have planted some questions. Okay. Don't ask about the Steelers. If this is about the Steelers, <laughs> okay. Not happy about that. Okay. You're talking that that guideline for for conversing people is speak to them in charity. Don't fight about the souls. Don't avoid winning the point. Be be worried about winning the point while losing the soul. Right. Could you give some tips on how to actually do that? Okay, how do I actually do this? Well, <laughs> it's it's a difficult thing. I mean, those um, those are the, those are sort of the, the, the principles. How do you do this? How do you um, try to win the soul instead of just you know um, you know winning the argument? Um, I think first of all, uh, being receptive to the person, being receptive to the person, because if somebody knows that you are actually listening. <coughs> They're more likely to listen to you. If somebody knows that you're actually taking them seriously, and that you're not, you know, like holding condemnation for them right there, they're more likely to listen to you. Okay, they're, they're going to be more open to what you have to say. In my work with Courage, I have had many meetings with men and women over the, the seven years that I was chatting, and some of those continue. Uh, in some cases, I had a meeting that didn't, didn't go well, but I, you know, but, but I would, I would end by saying, "Listen, the door is open. You know, you know where I am. You have my number. You've got my email. You know, the door is open." 
that there is exception to that. Okay. Um, not putting a label on a person and not allowing not allowing the person to label on himself. Um, sometimes that can be a smart out. Okay. Why this takes a and uh, one guy I was meeting with, he, he said, um, in the other homosexual. I said, no, you're not. Uh, yeah, yes, I am. No, you're not. Okay, well, I had his attention at that point, right? Because he was like, I'm pretty sure about this. <laughs> so I had his attention. I already knew him, you know, real about it. He joked in that way. But I had his attention. The point being, you're a person, you're a man, who is suffering these attractions here, who's experiencing these more or less intensely. And so I don't recommend the smart out approach all the time, okay? <laughs> but the um, point is not allowing someone else to assume that label. Another example, a woman I know who uh, did a lot of um, volunteer work with a man who was an active homosexual. Very faithful Catholic woman, daily communicant. He was living in DC with a partner. But they did volunteer work together for local public school. Um, one time he tried to bring up sort of you know his partner, his lifestyle, and everything. And she just shut shut it down and said, you know what? This volunteer work we do, we work well together doing this because we don't talk about that. So let's just but they, they had a good working relationship, and, and he knew that she genuinely, you know, cared for him. Years go by, uh, I think his mother or his father died. He had a conversion of heart, did not want to live the lifestyle anymore. His partner wouldn't have any of this, moved out. And so now here's this guy, sort of cut off from the homosexual community now. Where does he go? We go to the person we knows um, will accept it. And has been there throughout the years. He contacts this woman. This Catholic woman and says, you know, what do I do? She, she just sort of introduced him to the, the life of faith and everything. And that was the beginning of his conversion, is leaving the, uh, the homosexual community, the homosexual lifestyle. And so it was that, that, that friendship, that connection, that, that receptivity of the person. And, and it's tricky because a lot of times, this is what parents will experience a lot, parents of children who are in a lifestyle, is that the children will try to put the parents in a situation which they have to sort of approve in some implicit way. You know, I'm coming for Thanksgiving and my partner's coming with me. And if you love me, you will let this happen. And that's when, to say very, you know, very simply, very plainly, very charitably, no, because I love you, I'm not going to can't have that person coming. Okay. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, because, I mean, there, there's some, you know, principles that we abide by, there's some, you know, absolute things we should not do, but there's no one-size-fits-all. And, that, and that's why, you know, the, the respect for the person, isn't this characteristic of the saints? I mean, um, I had the privilege of meeting both John Paul II uh, and Mother Teresa, and no great shakes, it's just like, you know, the brief that I tie, you know, not for a long 
case, you know, when they were talking to me. It was just me. And I'm thinking the whole time, why are you talking to me? <laughs> but uh, this is characteristic of the saints, is that attention to each person and recognizing each person as distinct. And not trying to label a person or put them in a category. Saying, hey, who are you? And I will be receptive to who you are and uh, you know what I can do for you. That one in the back looks too difficult. <laughs> oh, come back. Being, being very aggressive and very intimidating 
just anger, I think, would be reasonable. Keep in mind, you know, Thomas observes that anger <laughs> is the passion that is most difficult to keep within the bounds of reason, uh, because it's sort of sort of our, our self-preservation. But I think, you know, something that's very, very firm uh, and very clear. I mean, in some of the courage meetings, I had to do that, you know, I had to kind of step in and and, and be, be very clear, very firm. Uh, always trying to direct that not so much at the person, but at what's being done. I think that's that's the solution. Uh, always trying to direct these things at the person, uh, not at the person, but at, at what's being done. That because um, a lot of it is also self fulfilling. I mean, there's one guy I was working with who, at, at one point in a, in, in a meeting, I said, "Listen, I think that you would be much more comfortable with." If I were to yell at you and told you that you were just miserable and wretched, and you looked up like relieved, and he said, Yes, I would. Because that's what he was comfortable with. <coughs> Interesting scene in the Gospels when, when our Lord goes to the um, land of the Pharisees and he exercises the demoniac there, who terrorized the town. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't hold him with chains. You know, there's a legion of demons in him, and our Lord exercises him, and, and the townspeople come out, and there's the, the, the demoniac sitting in his right mind, and he's sitting at the feet of our Lord. And what do the townspeople do? They ask our Lord to leave. What? We get very, very comfortable with demons. We get very comfortable with them. And so the the danger of the um, of the strong response uh, is not that it can't be justified; it's that it might sort of uh, confirm someone in you know, uh, yes, you know, that's the way I've always been treated, you know, and this is just confirming the shame I have. That's the danger. There's going to come a point in which some people are going to be offended, and we have to say it wasn't my intention. I tried everything not to offend, not to hurt. But the truth is the truth, and the truth serves the person in the end. Okay? So, it's, you know, like, the workplace is getting more and more difficult. Okay? Uh, so, those of you who want jobs after graduating, keep this in mind. As you said, uh, homosexual act is intrinsically evil. I, intrinsically, I said intrinsically evil. I really want to say intrinsically disordered. Intrinsically okay. disordered. That would be a better term. That's the guy that is. Either way, we can't we can't establish your acceptance of it. Right. So we share the person with it. Um, we have an obligation, say, in the workplace to show disapproval for. Okay. Uh, Great. What is the obligation, like, in the workplace uh, when there is an active homosexual, you know, in, in the office with you? What is your obligation? Really, it's a question about fraternal correction, isn't it? What is your obligation to show disapproval? Your obligation, first of all, is to live a good Catholic life and to show that by example. That, that's first, and to the chastity you know, yourselves, right? Because if you come out of nowhere with no connection to this person and show disapproval, they're just going to write you off. You know, what do I care about you? Okay? But if you say, you know, accept the person, you know, just okay. This is this is who you are. You know, um, we're not always bound to show uh, to correct everyone. Okay. So I mean, so if it's in the office, well, how 
people, let's say there are 40 people in the office, and you know, you have no contact with this guy, but you know he's living in a, you know, how do you do that? You know, stop by Steve Cole and say, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not. Uh, but if you're working closely with the person and getting to know the person and showing genuine Christian charity for the person, then at some point, yeah, it's, it's fair game to say, you know, why am I doing that? It's not good for you. And, and I think if, if things are, are done right, we're, we're living that, that, that Christian charity. I think that comes out naturally. One of the patrons of courage is, Amer- is, is a woman named Mary Sakovich. And I hope this doesn't frighten you in regards to this question. But she was, um, she was working with a man who was an active homosexual. And she pleaded with him to leave a lifestyle. You've all heard of Laramie, you know, Wyoming, the Laramie Project, and that uh, the, the homosexual was killed in Laramie, and uh, all that. Well, this is a story you don't hear about. This woman, Mary Sikovich, in Chicago, who was murdered by this man because she pleaded with him to leave the homosexual lifestyle. And he snapped. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, think of people. But it, 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 it means that, uh, you know, I mean, this, this is really sort of how intense the nature um, is But to your question, when do we correct someone? It depends on the relationship that we have and the proximity that we have. Just a fraternal correction in general. And by the way, what if, what if, what if people are, you know, living together, you know, or, you know, uh, the guy in the cubicle next to you is using pornography? You know, so it doesn't apply only in this, okay? Um, that they're playing. What if it's you know, a co-worker who's going out and getting drunk every night? He's got a serious drinking problem. Same, same thing, okay? It depends on how close is this relationship that you have with the person. Did I get you? Yes, but I would. I, you were being so balanced until this moment. Praying for somebody's healing. Okay. 
and not in a condescending way, because we should be praying for our own first, right? But, but healing, you know, in, in, in the profound sense that, that uh, you know, I, I've got some problems here spiritually, emotionally, or whatever else, and, uh, and others do too. So, Lord, you know, bring your healing. You know, the Holy Spirit that restores us to ourselves. So I, I think that would be very important. That's part of conversion part. Part of conversion part. So that, that should be the aim of prayers. Is really, it shouldn't be, dear God, make them see the way, see things the way I see them. Okay. Then they will be saved. Okay. No, it, 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 it should be, um, turn their hearts to you. And turn my hearts to you, by the way. Okay. So I think for conversion part, for healing, is, is um, openness to the truth. Because a lot of times, like the Pharisees, we're not open to the truth, to the Lord, because we've grown very, very comfortable with a disordered life. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Father, you're talking about the Christian uh, and There is meaning in human sexuality. 
That is our obligation first. Uh, the way I like to phrase it is, um, well, first of all, either sex means something or doesn't mean anything. It can't mean something sometimes and then, you know, nothing at other times. And, it, and people want it to have meaning because it's an intimate part of people's lives. They want it to have meaning. Well, in order for something to have meaning, it has to have boundaries. Uh, this is what this is what it means to define a word. When you define something, what are you talking about? They define it. You're talking about the boundaries of the thing. And so, human sexuality has meaning. It therefore has certain limits and boundaries. So first, we articulate the meaning of it, and then we say, therefore, these things cannot be permitted. And in that way, I think we also avoid the trap of just coming at it out of the blue, interrupting and saying, you know, gay marriage is wrong. It's not just that gay marriage is wrong, it's that it's one man, one woman, for life, exclusively, open to children. That is the norm. That is what we desire. That's what we're saying yes to. And because we say yes to that, well, therefore, we do not permit this. And so our opposition to something is a consequence of our devotion to the truth. I think that's the way the best is the public in the public square. Yes, ma'am. Very, very intensely. 
And I don't mean that's what they feel sort of in the superficial way that our culture talks about feelings. I mean, really, deeply, they sense that they were born this way because the first time they had any sort of sexual thought, it was for a person of the, of the same sex. So they've never known anything else. Now that's not all people with same-sex attractions, but it's many. So um, it's not entirely one or the other, okay? Uh, but I think that, and, and I, there's, um, if you want to go to um, a website, um, Google NARTH, N-A-R-T-H, the National Association for Research and Treatment of Homosexuality. Uh, in short, homosexuality is um, preventable and treatable. Preventable in the sense of, you know, a healthy environment can, can prevent that. <coughs> and treatable in the sense that uh, men and women can live chastity, and there is evidence that even those who have lived in a lifestyle for years can leave it and enter into, uh, enter into a heterosexual uh, lifestyle, perhaps even marriage. I know one man who should be dead because he was active in the homosexual lifestyle right as AIDS was, I mean, it was going all through the community and it was yet to be discovered. He should be dead, um, given his lifestyle. And he's married to kids right now because he went through what they call reparative therapy. Okay. Father, there was, do you have a question? I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, so we should conclude now. Okay. Thank you for your attention. I'm sure.